0: Again I want to thank you tonight for being here, and this is a new series for me. Now obviously church history has always been interesting to many of us, but I've never really put anything together for a congregation let alone a meeting. And I thought probably this would be a great thing to study because it seems like so oftentimes it's overlooked. So we're going to give tonight and tomorrow night and the next a very brief overview of church history. Now we might begin by just asking why do we need to study church history? Well, of course there are many reasons. But I think there are at least 3 reasons that will help us as we as we look at church history to find meaning and value in our study tonight. Number 1, to understand the providence of God. In other words, we are here tonight as Christians and we are here tonight as brothers and sisters in Christ because a long time ago, God providentially set the events in motion that would bring forth His Son, that would bring forth the Church, and even bring forth us to this point in which we are today. Number two, when we study Church history it gives us an insight into those many errors that have crept in through the centuries by man. Men often depart from God's way and so it will help us perhaps to combat error not only in our congregations but in our lives as well. And then number three, to gain a better perspective of where we are. You know the church as we know it today did not just fall out of Heaven this way. Now of course we are very particular about going back to the Bible and speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. So we trust that what we are doing tonight in our worship was indeed what they did in the first century. But there have been many things that have occurred. There are the annals of time that need to be looked at and discovered in order to really gain a good perspective of where we are tonight. And so we're going to look tonight at church history and primarily look at that first 70 year period or so that we call the Apostolic Period. And of course the term apostolic comes from the idea of Apostle. The apostles, the 12 that Jesus chose, were the ones that Jesus guided into all truth and then eventually commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel and establish faithful congregations or churches. So the period we're going to be talking tonight about is the area right here in the right hand side of our picture. The apostolic period from about the time that Jesus died on the cross, about 30 to 33 A.D., depending on what chronology you follow, on up to, shall we say, the death of John. It's believed that John was the last apostle to die. In fact, it is believed that perhaps he was the only one that died a natural death. And that period of about 70 years is a very fundamental and very formative period not only in the first century church but in laying the groundwork for everything else that would come before. Now in order to talk about the church I think we also have to talk about the kingdom just for a little while. Now to the last night we looked at the pe- the confession rather that Peter made in Matthew chapter 16. Peter said thou art the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus said upon this rock I'll build my church. And He said, I'll give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. Now when we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking, of course, about another way to describe what later would become the church. The kingdom concept was not new to the Jews to whom John the Baptist and Jesus later preached. They, of course, had understood the kingdom concept from even the kingdom of Israel. But down the stream of time God looked and He said, I'm going to send a spiritual kingdom. I'm going to give a real kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom, we're really talking about the reign of God. You remember last night I spoke of the throne that is in each of our hearts, and Jesus wants to sit on that throne. Well, that's just one small portion of the kingdom concept. The kingdom is, of course, the reign of God as it is today composed in those of us who are members of the Lord's church. Now, when John the Baptist came, John preached, the kingdom is at hand. You remember at the close of the Old Testament, Malachi had closed out the Old Testament period about 400 years before Jesus came. And there was this awesome silence of the the years where God gave no direct revelation. And then all of a sudden uh, John the Baptist came, thundering upon the scene, and he said, behold, repent, the kingdom of God, the reign of God is at hand. He was preparing the hearts and minds of those of us who uh, are like us today, for those of them who are like us today, in order to be prepared and accept the rule and the reign and the church, even of Jesus Christ. Well, of course, Jesus also came and he preached the kingdom. And he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the gospel. And of course the Gospel began to be preached in the time of Jesus. He taught the Gospel message and then later fulfilled the Gospel message in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Now if we had more time tonight, we don't, but I'll just introduce these because we may come back later in our studies to deal with this. But when we think about the Kingdom, of course, there are certain requirements for the Kingdom just as we will learn there are requirements for the Church. There, are, of course, has to be a King. There has to be territory. There has to be subjects. And there has to be law. King Jesus is the king of the kingdom, the church. And of course the territory are the hearts and minds of people. The subjects are those of us who have had our sins washed away in the waters of baptism. We are the subjects of the king. In fact the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then, of course, the law, just like a physical kingdom has a law, so we look to God's Word. And God is the one who has given us through His Son all that pertains to life and godliness. Now, Jesus, of course, as we mentioned last night, about six months from His death, His burial, and then His subsequent resurrection, took His apostles up to that area called Caesarea Philippi, and He said, who is it that people say that I am? And there were many opinions about who he was. But then Jesus looks directly at his apostles and he says, but who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you are deity. You are the one with authority. And Jesus says, upon that authority, Upon that bedrock, true, I'm going to build my church. And even goes on to say, the gates of Hades or hell, or shall we say, the departed realm of the dead, will not prevail against it. So you see, when we're talking about the church, which we'll develop in a moment a little bit more deeply, we have to start with the kingdom because Jesus, yes, he's the savior of the church, yes, he's the savior of the body, but the idea of the kingdom was just another way of describing that reign of God that would come through His Son Jesus in the church. And so, of course, writing to Jews and speaking to Jewish first people first, Jesus began and John began in speaking of the kingdom. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church though. The church and the kingdom are for all practical purposes to be equated on a practical level. Well, you know, as we go through the New Testament, we see the kingdom We see the church being talked about more and more readily as we go through the Gospels and begin to get toward the end of Jesus' life. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus as He speaks there of the Kingdom, the coming Kingdom, which would happen on Pentecost, the Church, the Kingdom, He says, there are some of you who are standing here that will not taste of death until you see the Kingdom come with power. And so you see we're starting already in Mark 9. To begin to see a time frame, a historic time frame when the church would come. Now, of course, we're talking about church history, and that's what we're going to be dealing with for the next couple of nights, but we have to start somewhere. Well, we're going to start at the beginning. That's a very good place to start. And we're going to start at the beginning because Jesus began to prepare for the church. He began to prepare the doctrines and began to teach the doctrines of the Kingdom. And He said, not only so, but it's going to come during some of your lifetimes. Now, that's important. Because there's been a lot of churches started since the day of Pentecost. There have been a lot of man made organizations that have started since the day of Pentecost that cannot trace their roots back to even close to the first century. But Jesus said, Some of you standing here will not die until you see the church established. In Luke 24, Jesus, right before he ascended, said that he was going to send the promise of the Father upon the apostles. He had promised them in John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and John 16, 13 to guide them into all truth through the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete, the one that will be called to their side. And so he says, You remain in the city of Jerusalem. And when it's the right time, you are going to be sent this power, this Holy Spirit, you are going to be clothed with power from one high. And then in Acts chapter 1, right before the day of Pentecost, which we find in Acts chapter 2. We find there that Jesus again tells them that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that they would be witnesses, witnesses of the truth, witnesses of the power of God and the church to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then on out into the uttermost parts of the world. And so you see Jesus was preparing step by step, slowly, increment by increment to prepare His apostles for that great day of Pentecost when the Kingdom would come. When the king would be inaugurated sitting on the throne at the right hand of the throne of God and he with him would pour out the holy spirit and the holy spirit would then guide the apostles into all truth. We find the fulfillment. We find the establishment of the church found in Acts chapter 2. And if you ever want to do a really incredible study, just study through Acts chapter 2 because there we find the birth of the church. We find the basic power of the church, the Holy Spirit, and of course the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, the resurrection was the topic that Peter preached on that day. He convicted people of their sins, some of whom apparently had even stood at the cross and helped crucify Jesus. But the day of Pentecost, a very special day. 50 days after Passover, Jesus having already ascended, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and it said in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And by the way, Pentecost was always on a Sunday, it was always on a Lord's Day. That's another study for another time, but it happened on the Lord's Day. The church was established on the Lord's Day. Some people wonder why we worship on the Lord's Day. Well, so many things happen on the Lord's Day. Jesus arose on that day. The church was established on that day. In Acts 20, the early church came together to break bread and to worship on that day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, the apostle there commands the children of God to give of their means on that day. It happens, it's a very special day. And Pentecost happened on that day. They were all together in one accord, in one place, and suddenly there came a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It filled the house where they were sitting. And then these tongues of fire—I don't know what that was like exactly—but it would have been magnificent to see. It sat upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues, languages which, of course, they had never studied. That also is a study for another time. That's fascinating, but here's the point: the church was established on the day of Pentecost, and here were the criteria that Jesus gave. He said it would happen during your lifetime. Check. It happened during the apostles' lifetime. He said it's going to come with power, check. It happened with power as the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was going to occur in Jerusalem, check. Because it was in Jerusalem in that room where there the apostles were endued with that Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit would be given because, yes, it would guide them and it would also begin to allow them to preach in languages that they had never be heard, before heard, or studied. And so what is the point? The point is is that the church was established on the day of Pentecost. Now, you know, one of the things that we'll look at from time to time as we go through our little series is that what did the church do? And I want you to also to kind of put this in the back of your mind, because while this may not figure prominently tonight, one of the things, in fact, really the first thing that the church did after it was established. And after those that were in the church were baptized, of course, they were baptized into the church and the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines. Now that's important because, as we've noted and as we'll say time and time again, often men depart from the faith. And really, in reality, the problems that the apostles had in the first century. As they went out and established congregations and dealt with error and heresy was because there were individuals who wanted to do it their way. Now we're going to see that throughout history both secular and religious. We're going to see men wanting to rise up and do things their way. Now one of the things as we move right along is that the Kingdom or the Church began at Pentecost. Everything up until Acts 2 is spoken of in the future. The kingdom is at hand, John said. The kingdom is near, Jesus said. Prepare your hearts and minds. But now after Pentecost, every time the apostles wrote about the church, they wrote about it as if it was already in existence and had been established. In fact, Paul in Colossians 1.13 says that Jesus has delivered, past tense, us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You see, Paul wrote to the Colossians and he fully viewed the church as being established at that time. You know, there are those who say, well, you know, the kingdom came in 1914 or the kingdom came at some other modern date. No, the kingdom came on the day of Pentecost. Now, what did they do? Peter preached, it was the gospel message that went forth, and they were convicted. You see, really, what the kingdom is about and what the church is all about is saving sinners. And you see, when we're saved from our sins, Then the Lord adds us to his church. And we then are part of that body, both universal and then a local congregation, where we then can worship God in spirit and in truth. You know, those that gladly received the word in Acts chapter 2 were baptized. They were immersed in water for the remission of sins. In fact, they cried out, What shall we do? They were cut to the heart, they were scared to death. And Peter said, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so Peter lays out the Gospel scheme very clearly and succinctly at the end of his sermon, just as we often do today. But they were baptized, and it says about 3,000 souls that day were baptized, and the Lord then, down in verse 47, added to the church daily such as should be saved. You know Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see, what the church is all about is manifesting the praises of Christ, the praises of God. And we come into the church through the waters of baptism. We are born by the waters of baptism. We die to our sins, as Paul spoke of in Romans 6. We are buried, and then we rise again, just as Jesus did from the tomb. And from that moment on then we put on Christ. We begin to become a disciple, a learner. A, we develop the characteristics and the traits of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the King. We are the subjects. The territory is our hearts. And His law is the Word that He has revealed to us. What did the early church do? Well, they were spiritual people. The early church was all about spending time together. They were all about sort of forgetting the world and concentrating on the most important things in life. They majored on the majors rather than uh, like we do many times we major on the minors, don't we? You see in Acts 2 verse 47 it says, they continued. Now remember they were Jews. The temple was still standing and was until AD 70. But they continued it says with one accord or in one group at the temple. And then they broke bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, they praised God, they got along with the people, at least at this initial stage, later persecution would come in. But it says the Lord was adding daily those who were being saved. You know, it must have been quite a revival. Three thousand were baptized in one day, and then later on people continued to be baptized. People continued to be Coming into the church, it was growing by leaps and bounds. We've never seen that like that today. Today, if we baptize one or two people a year, we think we're doing great. At this point, they are baptizing people like crazy. And of course, the book of Acts begins then in earnest to really give us an insight into what happened in the spread of the church. In fact, really, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are books about the life of Jesus. And they get us up to the establishment of the church. They get us through the death, the burial, the resurrection, the basic doctrines of Jesus Christ. But it is in the book of Acts that we really start reading about church history. Acts 2, the church is established. Acts 4, Peter and John preach to the Jews and come into conflict with the Jews. Acts 5, the church begins to be persecuted. Acts 7, there is the first martyr, Stephen. Acts 8, the Christians begin to be tossed about and they have to flee literally for their lives, but they take the gospel with them and they spread the gospel wherever they went, as we'll notice in a few moments. In Acts 9, Paul, that great persecutor of the church, is converted and in Acts 10, the first Gentiles, the house of Cornelius, is converted. You see, the book of Acts just takes us step by step through the spread really of the church, during those first formative years. In Acts chapter 11, Antioch receives the gospel. It's the first Gentile outpost. And from there, the rest of the book of Acts is going to take us with Paul on his missionary journeys, three in order, and then one, of course, to Rome as he there goes to prison. And it's going to show how Paul preached to the entire known world at that time. Now, you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we really have the outline. For that book. We have the outline for this first century of the church. Because there as Jesus speaks to the Apostles again, and as He's preparing them for the day of Pentecost, and He's going to go back to Heaven, He says, you will receive power. You're not going to go this alone. You're not going to do this under your own power. You're going to be able through Christ to do all things because He's going to strengthen you in other words. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We notice this verse in a moment, but notice what He says, and you will be by witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. You remember last night we talked about the three regions of Galilee, or re- regions of Palestine in Jesus' day? Galilee, of course, to the north. You had uh, Samaria in the middle and Judea in the south. You see, the Gospel went out like a, from a hub, It started in Jerusalem. Persecution set in, and the church began to spread. And so then it spread to Samaria. We find that in Acts 8, as Philip goes down to Samaria and preaches. And then later on, through persecution and other events and evangelism, the church begins to spread out into the entire known world. Now, I think there is a paradigm there that's important for us. And that is that, you know, really we ought to be doing the same thing, congregationally, individually, church-wise, brotherhood-wise, you know, we first of all what? Start where we are. We first of all start with our families. We first of all start with those around us. We start with our friends. And we begin to share with them the Gospel. And then we go to others of our own culture, those that know us the best. And then maybe to a nearby culture or to a nearby city or a nearby town. And then eventually we go if possible into all the world. Now I realize all of us can't go everywhere, every time, but the Church can send men, To preach the gospel just like Antioch preached or sent Paul to preach. That's the biblical pattern. Well, the church begins to spread, and of course the Jews at first are very angry about this. In fact, during the first century it was the Jews who persecuted the church. Saul, he was a good Jew. He was a good rabbi, and he laid waste to the church, and he he wanted to, to wipe out Christianity. And of course, Really, the blood of the martyrs of that first century watered the seed of the word. Paul is converted, though, later. And then, of course, in Acts 8, Philip, as we noted, he goes down to Samaria and preaches. Many are converted. And so the gospel is spreading, the church is continuing to grow. There is a man then that uh, Philip is called to go preach to in Acts 8 called the Ethiopian nobleman. That man is converted, he's baptized, he takes the gospel down to Africa. So, all of a sudden, now you've got Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now Africa. You see, the church is just growing geometrically, it is growing by leaps and bounds. And of course, once you get Saul converted, it really takes off because you see, Saul is a man that was converted to persecution, he hated the church. But that same fervor when he was converted became the same fervor and the energy that he poured in toward converting people to the church. You see you get a man that is dedicated to a cause when he is directed in the right direction he's going to be able to do a lot of good. And Paul did that, three missionary journeys, and then of course his final journey to Rome. Cornelius. You remember that whole story where the household of Cornelius the Gentiles have not yet received the Gospel. In Acts 2 only the Jews were present. But in Acts 10, remember Peter again was there on the rooftop of uh, there in Joppa, and this uh, vision comes to him, and this sheet is let down in this vision, and uh, God says, Peter, rise, kill these animals and eat. Well, many of them were against Jewish custom. Many of them were unclean. And Peter says, Lord, I can't do that. I've never eaten anything that was common or unclean. But what was God telling him? He was showing him that, listen, I'm getting ready to introduce you to some folks that you think are common and unclean. Because they're not Jews. But I have a place for them in my kingdom as well. And aren't you glad tonight that that was the case? Because we are Gentiles. I don't think any of us probably can trace our roots ultimately back through the lineage of Abraham. We're Gentiles. And so it is because God opened up the kingdom to the Gentiles that you and I can receive the blessings in Christ As Peter said, we once were not a people, but now we have become the people of God. In Acts 11 again the Gospel reaches up to Antioch. We've gone Jerusalem, we've gone Judea, now we're gone to Samaria, and then of course now we're all the way up into Antioch, and then of course down in Africa. And the Gospel begins to be spread. Antioch sends out Paul, Paul dedicates his life to preaching, and as I mentioned three arduous, difficult, dangerous trips were made by this man who once had formerly persecuted the church in order to spread the gospel throughout the entire empire. And I have no doubt in my mind that by the end of the first century, really by the end of Paul's life, Paul had by himself and with the other apostles basically had taken the church to the entire known world at the time. Well, let me just do a real quick special study, just two or three slides with you that will help us also understand some of the things that were going on in that period of time. So, we've got, this, we've got the church spreading. Paul is going to places like Corinth, he's going to places like Ephesus, he's going over to the Galatia and different places. He's establishing congregations. He comes in, he preaches, he baptizes people, or at least his helpers do, and they set up a congregation. They teach about the remission of sins through the blood of Jesus. But now what? Well, there has to be a certain amount of leadership in those churches as well. Now, the reason this is so incredibly important is because later on in our study tomorrow night, we're going to see that one of the first departures from the faith was in the area of leadership. People begin to elevate their leaders above not only themselves but also above their congregation and other congregations to the point that a pyramid began to develop. That will be something we talk about tomorrow night. But in the apostolic period, leadership was one of service. Yes, there was authority, the apostles had authority, but they served the needs of the people. Jesus had taught them that as on the night that He was betrayed, stooped out and washed their feet. And He said, you need to have this humility as well. He said, if you want to be great, you need to become a servant. Well, that's what happened. Jesus taught His Apostles, you be servants. Now, of course, later on that changed. Men began to elevate themselves above their peers, even beyond what the Bible allows, and there began to be structures in the church, leadership in the church that eventually in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 7th centuries developed into The papacy. We'll talk about that tomorrow night very quickly. But here is what we need to know from the first century. Jesus was the final authority. Jesus was the rock and His deity upon which the church was built. It was not Peter. It was not some man. He was the final authority. Jesus delegated that authority to the Apostles. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It will guide you into all truth. The power came upon them at the day of Pentecost, and the church recognized the authority of the apostles and continued steadfastly in that doctrine. Every departure that we're going to study tonight, tomorrow night, the next night that occurred, yea, every departure that comes today in the church is a result of people departing from the apostles' teachings. You say God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. God has given us everything that we need to know how to direct the Church, how to spread the Gospel, how to have leadership, correct leadership, and how to even live our lives. But when we depart from the Apostles' Doctrine we will find our worship askew, we will find our lives askew, we will find the Church not what it should be. In fact, perhaps we will find the Church no longer the Church of Jesus Christ. You know, God's given us everything we need. Paul wrote it like this in 2 Timothy as he finished up his life with this final letter, we believe, to Timothy. He said, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, it's, it's God breathed. And he says, It's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You know, there are some today who would say, We still look for revelation. We need continue revelation through maybe some feeling on my heart, or maybe th- some new prophet that arise. Jesus was the final prophet. Hebrews 1 tells us that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by the prophets, hath in these last days, spoken unto us by His Son. We can put a big explanation point behind that, because Jesus is the final revelator. He is the final message, He is the final word, He is the final logos of God. And there will never be another message given to man. I fully believe the Bible attests to that. And I fully believe that what we have in the Scriptures can lead us to all things righteous and godliness. Well, let's start to sum up. But as we look at the church of that day, it was really pretty simple. The church of course started with Apostles. The apostles, and by the way, we still have apostles today. Oh, they're not living, not on this earth, but we still have apostles, and we still have the authority of the apostles. You know, there's this one group very near my house in Kansas City that claim to have living apostles. Well, I don't believe that at all, but we do have apostles. They're not just dead apostles. They are apostles who are in heaven. I fully believe that. And so, we still have the authority over the Church, just as the early Church did. And we need to continue steadfastly in their words, as was revealed through the Holy Spirit. But in the early Church there were Apostles. Paul wrote of this in Ephesians 4, when he mentioned some four, shall we say, functionaries or offices. He says, God gave some, here's the list, Apostles, Prophets, Evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ." Now, why was this leadership given? It was given because Paul says, "...till we could all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or complete man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." Now, notice these here, the apostles, those that Jesus chose by hand, those who had seen the risen Lord, those who knew Jesus, prophets, those who either foretold through the inspiration of the Spirit, God's will, or foretold God's message. You know really the idea of prophecy is not just foretelling the future. It is foretelling that which has been revealed. And today in the strictest sense when we teach we are prophesying, not about the future, but we are foretelling God's will. Pastors, Of course you hear that term kicked around in our religious world very incorrectly. A pastor, or an elder, or a bishop, or a presbyter was all the same office in the first century. They were men who met the qualifications that Paul laid out in 1 Timothy and in Titus. They were men who were of stellar character. They were older men in the faith. They rose up together in a congregation, more than one in every congregation as there there was maturity, and they led that church, they led that congregation in the doctrines of the apostles. And then, of course, the evangelists would be then sent out to preach the gospel in not only the local area, but into all the world. And then, of course, what congregation would be complete without teachers? You know, many teachers, I'm sure tonight, are in this audience, and it's your job to go back to the Apostles' Doctrine, and under, if you have elders, the leadership of those elders to direct and help guide and help serve the congregation in proper nourishing and teaching and mentoring. You see, when we look at congregations, each congregation had these offices that Paul lists in Ephesians 4. Each congregation was what we call autonomous. They were uh, only held together by their, their love and the connection they had through Jesus to the Word. You see, one congregation was not over another. Each congregation in the New Testament was autonomous and only looked to Jesus and the apostles for guidance. Ephesus did not rule over Corinth. Corinth did not rule over Philippi. Philippi did not rule over Colossae, and so on and so forth. And of course, when that changed, and we'll see that changing tomorrow night, that began to lead to men who oversaw a multiplicity of congregations. And then of course, men who then would elevate themselves even up into the whole papal system. And from that of course, Catholicism and other things developed. Well we are going to stop tonight, maybe on Wednesday morning this is really probably a topic we might look at in conjunction to this since our study really ends Saturday night. But we may look at the major doctrines of the New Testament Church. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, but what does that mean? I think there's about ten things. I'll just sort of whet your appetite. I believe there are ten major doctrines. That almost every teaching in the New Testament falls within. I believe there are 10 doctrines, and we'll look at those perhaps Sunday morning, but there were major doctrines that the early church believed and held. These were the not creeds of men, but these were the belief systems and the doctrines that the apostles taught to all the churches. So, what have we learned tonight? As we close, what's our our summation? Jesus came. And he said, The kingdom is near. John the Baptist had said the same thing. Jesus said, Some of you standing here will not taste of death till the kingdom comes with power. Jesus told his apostles, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. You remain in Jerusalem and you stay there until you're endued with power from on high. They do. And on the day of Pentecost, on a Lord's Day, in fact, at 9 a.m., the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church is established, and from that point on, First to the Jews, and then in Acts 10 to the Gentiles, the church begins to spread. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, down to Africa, the uttermost parts of the world. Paul is converted. The church begins to spread even greatly now through Paul and his three missionary journeys. And they began to develop congregations. And they began to establish proper leadership under the authority of the apostles, the prophets directed by the Holy Spirit, the evangelists who continued to go out, and of course the elders and teachers in the local congregation. You see that was really the base. That was really simplicity itself in the first century. Now again, after that happened, after the first century, things began to get really messy. Why? Because they left the pattern of the New Testament. They left the Apostles' doctrine. And of course tonight, as we're going to notice in our last presentation on Saturday night, if we want to have a New Testament church, a New Testament congregation, we want to go back to that simplicity found in the Apostles' Doctrine. And we'll talk more about that. But that's our study tonight. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we've learned already from Peter's sermon and from Jesus' teaching that those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We've learned that we are baptized into the church. We are added to the church as we are saved through the waters of baptism. If you're here tonight and you are not in the church. If you're not a member of the Lord's body you need to be because salvation is only found in Him. You know Peter said only Jesus and His name is their salvation not in any other. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian would you be willing to take the steps that Peter outlined on the day of Pentecost? Would you be willing to hear the Gospel and of course believe it? Would you be willing to repent of your sins and be baptized, having confessed Jesus as the Son of God like Peter did, and have your sins washed away? If you would be willing to do that tonight, we'd be happy to assist you. Or tonight, if you have other needs we can help you with, we'd be happy to assist you in that as well, while we stand and while we sing.